0: East.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose to simplify the administration of m and a deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M;A payments, and online stockholder solicitation That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom Allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting Capital Allocators Podcast.com. My guest on today's show is Chris Brockmeyer, the Director of Employee Benefit Funds for the Broadway League, the National Trade Association for the Broadway theater industry. Chris serves as an employer-appointed trustee, and in most cases the co-chair, on 11 multi-employer pension funds, seven health funds, and four annuity funds with approximately $7 billion in total assets. For 11 years, Chris has artfully navigated delicate relationships across unions and employers and was honored for his great work by Institutional Investor Magazine with the 2014 Award for the Taft-Hartley Plan of the Year. Before arriving at the Broadway League in 2007, Chris worked on both sides of the table, first representing employees in eight years of work for performers unions, and then seven years representing employers as Director of Labor Relations at Live Nation and Clear Channel Entertainment. Our conversation dives into the tricky governance dynamics of Taft Hartley boards, including their challenging regulatory structure, keeping the peace among constituents, setting investment objectives, strengths and weaknesses of a slow moving decision making body, the best and worst in relationships with investment consultants, and OCIOs as a governance solution. Those struggling with common governance challenges can take a step back and admire Chris's dexterity in working productively with an ostensibly untenable set of circumstances. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Brockmeyer. Chris, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. You know, I think most people, if they grow up and they want to make it to Broadway, they probably don't envision themselves cast in the role that you're playing. So why don't you just sort of
1: take, take me through your background and, and how you got to be sitting where you are today. Sure. Well, uh, I uh, only half-jokingly tell folks that I have probably the least interesting job on Broadway, but at least I get to go to the Tony Awards. (laughs) My background actually is in, I have a master's degree in philosophy, so appropriate to nothing, uh, but applicable maybe to everything, I don't know. I found the theater industry more generally by way of labor relations. I worked for labor unions, uh, initially actor unions for about seven years, before moving the management side. How did you get for, from a philosophy major to working for labor unions? Another <laughs> well, in the absence of any job openings for philosophy, I uh, cast my net wide when I moved to uh, New York out of out of college, and had a general and vague idea that I kind of wanted to go into the entertainment industry, not necessarily knowing what that meant, but the idea of working in labor relations generally, which is where I started my career, was appealing to me perhaps because I enjoy debate, I enjoy negotiating, which are all skills that one learns uh, when, when one studies something like philosophy. So I spent seven years on the labor side and then uh, was offered a job opportunity with Clear Channel Entertainment. Actually, at the time, it was part of SFX Entertainment. It became Clear Channel. Then it became Live Nation. And I eventually ran Live Nation's Labor Relations. And I had gotten to a point in my career, I suppose, where while I still enjoyed and enjoy labor negotiations, I wanted to do something more. I wanted to do something that was perhaps more holistic in a way, you know, fighting on either side, which a labor negotiation, unfortunately, oftentimes is. Whether you're fighting for union or fighting for management, you're adverse to the party across the table in some way. And I wanted something different something more that was more symbiotic and in my role today as a director of employee benefit funds at the broadway league i have an opportunity to mostly work with my union counterparts because that is what we're charged to do as fiduciaries to work in the best interest of the participants of course we run into issues where the best interests of the participants may not be defined in the same way on management as it is on union, aside all the time. And so it it, it still – the position still offers my ability to put to use my skills that I have honed in labor relations to work with our union counterparts and get things done and be effective. And,
0: and what would you –
1: Classify as those key skills: predominantly listening to the other side, understanding the other side, putting your feet in the, uh, in the shoes of the other side, the other person, and articulating your difference and trying to convince the other side that your view is better. Or, or if you can be convinced otherwise, uh, there's no, there's no uh, harm, and certainly no shame in, in admitting that maybe your position was was not as good as the others. So that is, in my view, one of the most critical and sadly one of the most lacking, especially in, in, in today's, uh, especially political environment, one, one of the most least prevalent skills that people either have or, or choose to use to, to really understand the other side and, and, and work together. Why don't you walk through
0: what your role in the Broadway League encompasses today? So
1: I uh, serve on most funds as Co-chair or chair. Um, these are Taft-Hartley multi-employer plans that are jointly trusteed by law uh, by equal numbers of employer and union trustees. So that's the board that oversees the plan. That's right. Is half employer reps and half union reps. That's right. And so I serve as co-chair on, on 11 different pension plans and five annuity plans. And when I say pension plans, traditional defined benefit pension plans and annuity, either 401k or, or just traditional annuity. And then I also serve on five health plans, but from an investment perspective, it's not really as interesting since health plans is sort of a kind of a cash in cash out sort of transactional relationship. Yeah. And so these are 21 I guess are they dis- each one distinct per se no I mean I, I work with 13 different boards because a number of the boards cover the pension and the health or in some cases okay. the pension health and annuity and so it really is three distinct groups three distinct units um, so 13 different boards that's right four meetings a year at least four meetings a year per board. You know, larger funds tend to have meetings in between. We have lots of committee meetings. I, I spend most of my life in board meetings. When right. I mean, I'm not in board meetings. I'm in my office probably preparing for those board meetings. And that's, that's what I do. So.
0: And what are the, I mean, that's 13's a lot. What are the range of dynamics that you've seen and what makes an effective board and a less effective board?
1: Well, an effective board, going back to relationships with, you know, between union and management trustees, the most effective boards are those that are able to leave their union and management hats outside the door and are able to sit down at the trustee table and truly act in the best interest of the participants. And fortunately, most of the plans that I sit on. Are blessed with with that kind of dynamic. That's not the case in every fund I sit on, and it's certainly not the case in all industries in in the multi-employer world. There are some some industries where I've heard stories that collective bargaining negotiations sort of continue, and the board meetings are almost an extension of those Mm -hmm. negotiations. And and fortunately, we just don't have that sort of dynamic in my industry, which uh, I'm blessed with. Why are there 13 different Organizations or
0: boards within this umbrella. Why don't we just all
1: get together and do it? Do Be efficient about the whole thing. Sure. Yeah, it's first of all tradition and and the history. I mean, each union, the commercial theater industry as well as the entertainment industry generally, is heavily unionized. We have. If you go into the theater. Pretty much every single person you see working in that theater and people you don't see behind the stage are unionized employees. And each of them established the union at different times and have a certain degree of pride and institutional ownership of what it is that they do. And so they've created their own pension plans, their own health plans. On the health side, there has been, you know, when, when I started this job a little over 10 years ago... I believe there were 10, maybe 11 health plans, and now there are five. So there have been mergers, significant mergers uh, on the health fund side. Pension side is harder to do, both legally as well as, I think, philosophically. So you know the result is you know, I work with that many distinct boards. And you know, from a governance perspective, it's difficult. I'm the only common thread across those plans. That I've, there are some trustees that sit on multiple plans but not all plans I consider one of my jobs to be bringing best ideas from one plan to the next uh, or what I think of best ideas and part of my job is to convince the other uh, trustees both employer and and union as well that they are actually best ideas that should be adopted and that that applies to investing as well as all sorts of other you know governance yeah. and, and other administrative and so on
0: and just out of my curiosity these how do these 13 break down you have to go through each one but is it
1: Actors is one, and Stagehands is another. Yes. Is that how? Yes. I mean, it's a, a, the actors' Equity Association is the union that represents actors and stage managers. IOTC represents Stagehands. Uh, IOTC Local One represents New York Stagehands, and so on and so forth. Okay. Wardrobe, hair, makeup, designers, uh, everything directors. Everyone you see or everything That's that
0: you right. don't see that goes into a show. Okay. That's right. And so what's the range of how you set out the investment objectives
1: across plans? None of the plans I sit on have in-house finance people, CIOs. And is that effectively your role? Well, I mean, them? my role, I, the short answer is no. I mean, my, my role includes that because I am a full-time trustee. My focus is much, I, I spend much more time on investment Matters perhaps than the the average trustee, just because this is what I do full time. Most trustees are either union leaders or they're labor relations people with, with a with a network or with a with a theater chain, and you know, they serve as a trustee as sort of a side activity. Yeah. So they don't really have time to focus as much on some. And of those is issues. there much
0: investment expertise in each of those boardrooms?
1: Not necessarily. I mean each each trustee brings his or her own strength to that debate. But, you know, I I don't want to be categorical, but I believe there is not a single trustee that I work with whose primary job function is investing. There are some trustees that serve as CFOs in, in their respective companies. So that's a a little bit but so so as a result we, we rely heavily on outside consultants and the genesis of asset allocation discussions the genesis of of really almost any discussion whether to hire fire managers that are underperforming starts with consultation with that investment consultant and Sometimes investment consultants are more active in bringing ideas to boards. Sometimes the boards bring the ideas to the investment consultant. It's kind of a mixed bag. It's It depends on which firm you're working with and it depends on which rep within that firm yeah. you're working with. And so just to make matters more complex, you don't use the same consultant across these plans either. That's right. How many we, different consultants do you work with? We work with five different consultants. Some of them serve multiple funds. And more recently, we have started moving more in the direction of an outsourced CIO model distinct from what I always refer to as the traditional model yeah. of Taft-Hartley So world. let's talk about both of those. Well, first of all, let's, let's start with
0: Taft-Hartley plans in general. You've mentioned to me that they are rife for change.
1: What's wrong with your average Taft-Hartley plan and what needs to change? Well, from an investing perspective, as I had mentioned before, none of the trustees is an investment professional or an expert. Typically, the time spent on focusing on investment matters is at the in, in the boardroom and maybe some time prepping for that board meeting. So once the trustees get to the boardroom and start having that discussion... The reliance on the third-party consultant is very high. Nonetheless, the trustees are in a position where they're the ones that are making the final decision. And so sometimes one sees in in interviewing a new manager, especially in asset classes that are harder to understand, the the trustees – rely in in my view more heavily on the consultants view than than perhaps they should or would otherwise need to given the fact that we are you know the buck stops with with the with the trustees. Right. but if they don't have the knowledge base to really make the decisions themselves, what other choice do they have? right except that when we are you know for example considering what to do with an underperforming manager who's underperformed for a year and a half because the markets have been not working for the thesis that, that that manager might, the reason that we hire that manager, trustees can get impatient and we end up in that trap that so many investors end up in, which we fire them at their nadir and hire someone at their apex. And then we sell low, buy high. And I, I've seen some of that on on my plans. I have to say that I think mostly our trustees exercise some caution and exercise patience when it comes to terminating managers but you're probably right if you if you rely on the investment consultant's advice all the time uh, you're probably in better a better position but the problem is we don't rely on the investment consultants advice all the time you know we we do when we do and then we don't when we don't and another problem with it with the governance structure really and, and I think the bigger problem is the inability to act quickly in in any given circumstance we meet quarterly every now and then we have meetings in between our, our quarterly meetings but by and large if we are interested in going into private equity and a plan and this is a an actual true story on one plan that it was it was introduced to private equity about 4 years ago 4 or 5 years ago we first started discussing the idea asked the investment consultant to come to us with a, an education program, so we understood what the asset class was. We then went to an RFP process. After that RFP process, we went through a long discussion about how to narrow that down. We then started interviewing the finalists and then interview the finalists some more. And b- by the end of the process, it took us north of two years to actually go from the idea of investing in private equity to actually engaging the manager. And then, of course, it takes years to actually fund private equity. So, you know, as a result, we missed at least one, arguably two of the most fertile years private equity's had in decades. And so those are the kind of perils that we face in the multi-employer environment. It is, I think, not unique to the multi-employer environment. I speak to colleagues in the public funds as well and, and other arenas of institutional investing where there are over-heavy governance structures that are well-intentioned, but in today's dynamic market makes us kind of flat-footed as investors.
0: And your board structures for Taft-Hartley plans are regulated
1: in, in the structure, is that right? Yes, I mean, we, we're governed by ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, federal law, And our fiduciary duties are defined in ERISA and they are very rigorous, I guess, let me put it that way. And so when we enter into investment relationships and introduce new asset classes, we need to be very, very careful um, and very prudent in how we do that. We need to demonstrate that we have gone through a due diligence process that is adequate so that We can demonstrate that we understand the asset class, that we've chosen, we've made the best selection based on the information that we have. And so, as a result, historically, Taft-Hartley multi-employer plans have been a bit nervous about getting into some more exotic asset classes. What's considered exotic? Well, before 2008-2009 financial crisis, you would be hard-pressed to find a Taft-Hartley plan. Invested in private equity, uh, invested in emerging markets. It just didn't didn't exist. In fact, in some industries, you would not even see plans invested in uh, developed international equity because they objected to the basic idea of giving money to a company that might compete against American union labor. Not a very good investment reason, but nonetheless, those are some of the politics that one deals with in a Taft-Hartley boardroom. So post-2008, 2009, trustees realized and investment consultants helped them to realize that funds needed to have a far more diversified portfolio than the 60-40 or the, the sort of traditional domestic equity you know at the time a diversified portfolio was you don't have just large cap but you have some small and mid as well in in your in your domestic equity and 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 that was it and then you know for your fixed income side you might have a core plus manager to kind of give a little juice to your to your fixed income that was viewed as being a diversified portfolio pre-2008 and after that when we saw all asset classes just collapse. And our investment returns were, I'd say, consistently minus 20 plus percent over that period of time. So, you know, obviously not nearly as bad as as the S&P because we had fixed income diversification, but we found we suddenly realized there was not safety to be had in the fixed income arena. And so ever since then, I would say that at least the plans I sit on, I can't speak universally for multi-employer plans. I think it's a similar situation. Multi-employer plans have become far more sophisticated as investors and the consultants serving them have become more sophisticated as well. So now, you know, now we're investing in private equity and private credit and bank loans. And, yeah. And and so if it's out there as an asset class, we're probably looking at it. Some boards will still have, I mean hedge funds is probably the best example. Some some boards will just have this I don't want to call it irrational, but this objection to hedge so funds no matter response, sure. no matter what it is. And not so much anymore, but every now and then, you, one does run into it's a philosophical objection to a particular type of investing that you can't get past. What are the
0: strengths and weaknesses of the various consulting relationships you've
1: had? Well, first of all, with any consultant, and it's not just investment consultant, but that's who we're talking about today. With any consultant, it is critical that all of the trustees trust your consultant. You have to believe that they are competent, that they are doing what is in the best interest of the funds, and that they are serving the trustees toward that goal. If for some reason a number of trustees kind of turn against an investment consultant and that investment consultant is not delivering in the eyes of the trustees, you have a real problem. And it sounds like you're saying that out of experience. Yeah, without using no, without any using names. names the walk through that that example, sort of what derailed the relationship? Well, in one instance, we had, again, it actually surrounded private equity in no small part. We had a consultant that we had asked to do a private equity search for us. And actually it took us probably nearly six months for them to actually start that education process even after we had asked for some reason there was a resistance either because they didn't they weren't experts in the asset class themselves or whatever the reason so once we finally got to the point where we had gotten the education the rfp process and the discussions that went on between the consultant the union trustees and the employer trustees created an environment where one side wasn't trusting the other side and it might have been actually each side might have felt that the consultant was treating the other side special. And so it created something of a toxic environment where it wasn't the advice that was being it was being given by the consultant was not fully trusted by one or both sides of trustees. And once you get to that point, it's just not possible for a consultant to be effective in in giving advice. And so that resulted in an RFP and we replaced that consultant ultimately. So I don't envy the role of investment consultants. I don't envy envy the role of any professional that works on a Taft-Hartley board because there are politics involved. Inevitably, one of the most important functions of a consultant is to sit in that room and try to demonstrate to the union trustees and the employer trustees alike that they're not favoring one side or the other, that they are sitting there on behalf of the participants. But human beings being what they are, it's very easy for interpretations to go one way or another. And is and, there, is
0: there sort of a repeated topic where the, the union reps and the
1: employee reps fracture? Again, that question will be uniquely answered to each board. For the most part, the boards I sit on do not suffer that problem very often. I you know the most obvious time where it does is when the union, you know, a plan is really well funded, the union trustees come in and say we want to want to increase benefits. Inevitably, the increase being sought will make the employer trustees uncomfortable. And so even if the employer trustees agree that there's some sort of benefit improvement warranted given the funding status of the plan, the employer trustees are probably going to be a little more conservative in assessing how much the fund can afford to pay out versus the union trustees. And, you know, again, fortunately, I don't, Experience very often a situation where union trustees come in and look for benefit increases at politically convenient times, which you know I think might might happen in other yeah. in, in other industries. And other How plans. does that translate over
0: into investment risk? Because I'm imagining a scenario where if you do really well, the money could at least be asked to come out of the plan. If you're underfunded, that has implications for how you take risk and what kind of drawdowns you can tolerate. Walk through how how that plays
1: out. Well, that's a very complicated dance because on a certain level, it would be nice as an employer, not necessarily as an employer trustee, but maybe as an employer trustee, it would be nice as an employer to say, okay, we are working toward being fully funded based on the current contribution structure and we want to implement an LDI strategy. Um, LDI strategies don't work in Taft Hartley for a lot of different reasons, but one of which, one major, I would say, political reason is that once you adopt an LDI type strategy, you are basically saying, these are my liabilities, they're not going to change. And these are, we're not going to increase benefits any longer. And a union isn't going to do that. And understandably, they're not going to want to do that. So, and that's that's an extreme example where you know for that and other reasons we, we will never we will never adopt in any full way sort of risk parity strategy or anything like that. So so on a softer level we're constantly discussing. What our investment return assumption should be now. Our, by law, the actuaries determine what it is based on our asset allocation. So the trustees can't certify with the government and say well, we're going to have an eight percent investment return uh, assumption. So that's that's established by law. However, a number of funds I sit on, we've established what we consider sort of an internal assumption that we notwithstanding whatever the actuary certifies with the federal government, will say, you know, we want to use a 7% return assumption because we want to be more conservative in our approach. Now, there is some tension when we discuss that because the union trustees, it obviously lowers the probability of us being able to, quote, afford our benefit increase at a future time. So, you know, on the one hand, union trustees want to try to maximize return. but just like every other investor in the world, they also want to minimize risk because riskier portfolio is going to suffer in 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 down markets and that's going to have a negative impact on them as well. So you know that that balancing act is when we're talking about asset allocation and the risk return profile, I, I'm not so sure that, from either the union or the employer's side, foremost on their mind is, oh, we have to juice returns so we can give benefit increases. But somewhere that is, that is influencing.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000. 25, and one. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. And so on the asset allocation side, how wide is the range of uh, of the different structures of asset allocation across the 11 plans?
1: In very broad terms, probably relative to what you might see in an endowment versus a uh, CalPERS or something like that, it's the, the 11 plans I sit on are remarkably similar. That said, I have one plan in particular that the board has decided it needs to try to really maximize returns and shoot for an you know, eight plus percent return profile. And that means that we have, you know, twenty percent invested in private equity and fifteen percent in emerging markets. And it's a very aggressive, especially for the Taft Hartley world, a very aggressive portfolio. And, you know, I guess on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we have a plan that looks closer to sixty forty, although you know, it might have an emerging market allocation and other developed international but but certainly you know more like a 5% emerging market as opposed to 15. So what motivates asset allocation discussions has mostly to do with the funded status of the plan and if the plan the pension protection act of 2008 established these zones green zone yellow zone red zone and of course everyone wants to avoid Either the yellow but certainly the red zone. And as long as we have a plan in green zone status, green zone plans tend to have a very similar investment profile, just enough risk to hit that long term return of seven and a half percent, which the actuaries certify, but not so much that. We could get slaughtered in you know the market that we're, we seem to be seeing over the past few right. weeks. Well, that, so. you
0: know that's the other question, right? Is when you have a board that has a little bit less sophistication in the financial markets, is there a healthy dose of reality that maybe these seven and a half percent long term targets aren't really achievable in the next stretch of time based on where bond yields are and, and stock market prices?
1: It's interesting that investment consultants again pre two thousand eight. If the trustees even really were presented with capital market assumptions, it was very, you know, the long-term capital market assumption over a 20-year period, 30-year period, and and complicating that analysis is the fact that actuaries tend to use a longer time horizon than investment consultants and investment managers. So there's not going to be total harmony between. Those two camps, and those are the two, it's the actuaries, the investment consultants that drive the discussions when it comes to asset allocation for the trustees to discuss. So the the allocation discussion that takes place today is more, much more nuanced, I guess, because we have more tools, we have more data available to us. And so today, when we talk about capital market assumptions, we break it down in, you know, w- what are the assumptions of the next five to 10 years versus 20 years? And it seems kind of obvious now, but we didn't do sure. that 10 years ago. Right. And, you know, when a diversified portfolio that is fairly aggressive, again, you know, 20% private equity and and fifteen percent emerging markets still shows that, you know, we're looking at a six, six and a half percent return maybe over the next decade. That definitely changes our thinking on multiple levels. And even if the long-term return still is eight percent over a twenty or thirty year period with that sort of portfolio, we need to accept the consequences of what a six or six and a half percent return average might be over the next ten years when we're assuming seven and a half with the federal government. So, th- those are all very complicated uh, discussions that the board has that obviously affect every every aspect of of what a fund does and what the trustees yeah. do to operate that fund. Just so circling back a little on the investing
0: side, outside of being able to navigate this complex constituent of each board, what are the what are the strengths that you've seen in the successful consultant relationships?
1: Those that are successful, the consultants, the individual that's actually consulting and not necessarily the firm, establishes a good sense of what hot points exist for certain trustees and the board generally it knows how to balance between Alienating trustees by pushing something or pushing something too hard, yet still being brave enough, if you will, to bring new ideas to a board that could get shot down. The investment consulting relationships that tend to treat the trustees as as professionals in their own right, if not professional investment people as professional labor leaders or labor relations people and come to the table with that balance to educate yet not treat the trustees as though they're they're fools, I guess, is a yeah. is is a good relationship. But as I said before, it's not being an investment consultant on a Taft Hartley plan is is I'm sure no easy task. Unfortunately, um, it's not something I've had to do in my career. So.
0: so if you take your philosophy hat on from your training, how much are you able to impart the beliefs that you have about investing onto these plans? And wh- and what are those core beliefs?
1: Well, one core belief and one thing I've gotten better at as I get older, as many of us do, I guess, is to practice patience and not get alarmed at events that seem alarming at the time. And it seems that these days we live in an era where everything seems alarming. And in the 2008, 2009, financial crisis taught us that we should not act based on alarming data alarming information and none of the plans i sit on exited equities at any point in time we just sat there and bore it out and we were rewarded in the end because we've had the longest bull market in in, in second longest in history i guess now right? was that also so, was that part of
0: conscious decision in part as you were talking about just the lag in decision making
1: working in your favor because things turn yeah it's i'm glad you asked that because i was thinking that as i was saying is you know so the, the i guess one could argue that the upside to a slow governance structure is it didn't allow us to panic and say sell all of our equities and throw them in fixed income or go to cash or yeah, whatever sure. but i i don't want to overstate that i don't, I don't I don't think that even if we had government structures that allowed us to act that quickly, I don't believe we would have done that. It's hard to say. Now, to get more philosophical, <laughs> you know, as I said earlier, one of the roles that I've always enjoyed, in both in labor relations as well as in in my current position and working with the other side, union or management, however the case may be, I appreciate. And take pride in the fact that I typically am able to get to a place that we need to be without a lot of chaos, without a lot of sturm Drang, without a lot of anger, by trying to understand the other side and talking it all through and when I studied philosophy in graduate school, I was a big uh, Hegelian, and the Hegelian dialectic, the uh, you know thesis, antithesis, synthesis is how it's always simply said. Is, is I mean, in, in no small degree, that's exactly what labor relations and what union management relations are all about. One side puts something, something forth, the other side puts something that's the opposite forth, and you work it out. And in working that out, you get to superior levels and superior conclusions than otherwise you might have gotten to if one side had just said, we're going to do this now. So that's, uh, I think, a a philosophical uh, application of of much of what I've done in my career.
0: Are there paths that you see to improve the governance structure of your kind of average Taft-Hartley plan?
1: Where we have gone toward an outsourced CIO model on three plans that I sit on, two large plans they you know that's the in a way the the one size fits all or the or the quick fix to the governance issues we just sure we don't do it anymore yeah i um, mean on both those plans we still set asset allocation but we're not interviewing managers we're not making decisions about overweight underweight certain targets the consultant does that and how did you weigh There's an incremental cost to that activity
0: versus having a consultant.
1: Well, that's a little bit, again, to use a philosophical term, it's a little bit of a leap of faith as a a certain existential philosopher uh, uh, once said Schopenhauer. If you're going to go into that outsource CIO relationship because it is more expensive, you better believe that that consultant is going to deliver alpha that far exceeds the fees you're paying them. Because you're right, relative to... The traditional consultants, an OCIO could be four, five, six times more expensive, you know, but it's based on on beta returns, right? So so you, one has to really believe in the consultant that you're hiring and believe that they're going to be able to deliver alpha by making tactical decisions and hiring best in breed managers. And how much of it is that? And how much of it is the other side,
0: which is at least you know that some of the more common aspects of human nature that work their way into the governance process can can get out of the way. So yes, you hope they're gonna do much better, but maybe the existing entity
1: just won't do as badly. Possible, and <laughs> you, 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 you just never know, right? And, and in fact, once we switch from a traditional consultant to an OCIO, we'll never know whether that traditional consultant would've outperformed the OCIO sure. at a much lower fee either. But on those plans that have not gone to an outsourced model, governance issues, and, and you know, I think generally speaking, in the multi-employer world, an outsourced model makes a lot of sense. There may, it may not be right for some trustees, uh, for some boards, but by and large, my personal view is that that it's, it's, it's a good fit if you can find the right yeah. consultant and trust that consultant. But th- those plans that, that have not and will not go in that direction one of the most important governance decisions to make, if it can be made and if there's trust amongst the board and the board members, is to create a streamlined system where moments that require urgency in in the view of the consultant, those urgent decisions can be made. Uh, We had, my favorite example is when we had the TARP program came about, only one plan I sit on took advantage of TARP. And it was, as we all know, was hugely, hugely successful and rewarding for for those of us that got into it. And the only reason we, well, two reasons really that we, that, that one plan did that was that we had a consultant that was bold enough to come to the trustees. And we had a governance structure and style that allowed for a quick decision to be made. None of the other plans I sit on went into TARP. I don't want to say it was be- just because of the governance, but that was a major role because we wouldn't have been able to get in if we had to wait three months for our next board meeting and discuss what it all meant and, and so on and so forth. So, so that you know, the downside is that if you quote streamline too much and you don't have proper due diligence and oversight, you could have two four people making b- really bad decisions, maybe even well intentioned, maybe not well intentioned that could get the whole board in trouble. So that's yeah. that's the downside. How risk. recently
0: did the first plan switch to an OCIO?
1: The final transaction it was just over a year ago, okay. about, so a year, about a year, about a year and a half. So it's relatively
0: new. And so what was that process like uh, once you made the decision to look at the OCIOs? What were you looking for to differentiate one from the next?
1: Well, initially, the first plan that went toward the OCIO model, we were simply doing an RFP for a consultant, and we decided to throw in a couple of consultants that were more known for their OCIO capabilities, just to educate the trustees for the chance that we might do that in the future. And surprisingly, the trustees grabbed onto the idea, thought it was a terrific idea, and so we focused on that more exclusively what we were looking for was a consultant that had strong enough research to be able to rely on their own internal papers and their own internal data we wanted a consultant that could have access to best in breed managers we wanted a consultant that we knew would be able to work with us in in many different market conditions and introduce different ideas that we had previously not really explored. And when we when we ended up with the the final candidate, we were surprisingly not that we didn't care that much about the fact that the final candidate was not a Taft Hartley type consultant. You know, I talk so much about consultants working well with boards. One would maybe assume that Those that work best with Taft-Hartley boards are those that have relationships with Taft-Hartley boards to begin with. And we interestingly did not uh, do that, our first foray into into OCIO model, but we were confident that they would work well with us.
0: Given that governance structure decision, can you ever envision a scenario where you decide to go from the OCIO back to just a regular consultant? for that particular plan that's made the decision.
1: Well, we'll see in four or five years, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but just if you're,
0: if you're thinking about it, right, if the OCIO doesn't perform well, the tendency could be, well, we like the governance structure, let's find a better OCIO, yeah. as opposed to let's just take it back ourselves.
1: I think if the reasons for which, it probably would depend on the reasons for which the trustees thought the OCIO underperformed. If they made bad decisions because of Tactical positioning of asset classes, then yeah, we would probably say, you know what, we like we like our slow governance structure. You know, we may not have like gotten in and hit home runs and asset class. You know, maybe we didn't get into hedge funds until they were six years old, but at least we avoided all these blowups. You know, if on the other hand the OCIO underperformed because they you know they just didn't have good managers or what, whatever the reason you know, maybe we'd look for another OCIO. So if I guess the, simply put, I would be more inclined to select a new OCIO rather than going back to traditional manager if the underperforming OCIO underperformed for reasons not relating to the reason we brought them in the first place. And then as you look across peers,
0: other pension funds, where do you see pockets that have similar governance challenges than what you do?
1: outside just generally yeah. outside of Taft Hartley anywhere the new york city system has a has a similar does, uh, issue yeah. to us uh, in in that they there are multiple plans obviously by degrees representing many more billions of dollars than than, than we, we we represent about 7 billion dollars in our pension and annuity plans combined and i'm not even sure what the numbers is for the city of new york but it's hundreds of billions they have similar difficulties with dealing with different boards, different investment committees. And I understand that they actually now have an, a kind of an Uber investment committee that is all the other investment committees combined, um, where they are vetting managers Each each board makes its own decision, yet they still have a sort of a vetting process that is, is, is a combined effort of all the boards. We don't have anything like that. Maybe something like that makes sense someday. So from a governance perspective, I see some some similarities. uh locally right here in New York more generally as I talk to public plan CIOs or CEOs throughout the country I guess I'm surprised at how similar uh, the stories are with Taft-Hartley and public plans because the board structures are different but not that different you tend to have boards that are they come from different walks of life they're not investment professionals and you may not have union politics, but you have even more complicated politics, yeah. which is municipal or state politics. And I, we've gotten I think, a lot of good practices and good ideas from speaking with, with public plans uh, in particular. So on the single employer side, we probably don't share a lot in common with, with single employers, although I'm envious of their ability to do whatever they want as quickly as they, they can and not having yeah. to deal with the unwieldy boards at times yeah (laughs)
0: and and what happens when you in reading and talking to people come up with an investment idea
1: trying to think of an example bank loans when when i go to a conference and there's a panel talking about a particular investment strategy or someone's hyping up bank loans which was you know that's probably a couple years old at this point when everyone was talking about it, I would go back to my boards or I really go back to the consultants and ask, ask the consultants to take a look at it. Sometimes it had to do with a particular manager in an asset class or, or just the asset class generally and have the discussion, probably me with the consultant first. And then if it seemed that it made sense, then with, with the board, this sort of, initial the genesis of an idea on boards could fall flat or could be something it's really even after doing this for 10 years it's impossible for me to know or to say another good example is social investing or there's some boards all boards like the idea that i sit on but some boards are less interested in spending the amount of time and energy it takes to to go there. Some boards are more willing to just accept the basic social investing formula or, or over overlay. And do you get concerned
0: that whether it's through the consultants or through the OCIOs, they have scale businesses, obviously much bigger scale than, than your assets, which are substantial in and of themselves. Do you get concerned that everybody wants best-of-breed managers? By definition, everybody can't have them. That as those OCIOs, or as those consultants have scaled their businesses that you are left with just an average?
1: That's a concern. Again, distinguishing between the OCIO and the the traditional managers. Interestingly, a lot of the traditional Taft-Hartley managers, consultants rather, tend to have the same group of investment managers that that they select from. When we went to an OCIO, that had not had any Taft Hartley experience before, the termination of existing managers and replacement was was astonishing. I think there was there was maybe one manager out of thirty that they kept, and of they brought the, in of the existing of the existing group wow. and brought in a group of of managers that many of which I knew of, heard of, many of which I would never heard of before. So that would tell me that. There is, and this isn't really a criticism, I guess, but within the Taft-Hartley investment landscape, there are certain firms that have chosen to focus on this part of the institutional investor market, and they've been successful, and others have chosen not to. And so it's self-selecting because of that, whether that circumstance means that we are getting getting inferior returns I don't know. I mean again, this is this is one of the one of the interesting aspects of the an OCO model with all these new managers coming in are we going to outperform because they are really better. But but yeah, on a very localized individual level when we're sitting down with in the traditional model and interviewing managers, we we talk about capacity issues and we talk about you know whether or not they're they've just become too large. And that that's one of the one of the factors that we consider when we hire manager yeah, like on a very well, local level. But.
0: It's going to be pretty fascinating now that you've got, we won't call it a horse race, but now that you have different looking horses right. running the race, it'll be interesting over the next couple of years, see how it plays out. All right. Well, I usually turn to a couple of closing questions and a bunch of people have said to me, "These sound like inside the actor's studio type questions. This is the best place to do it. Chris,
1: what, what was your favorite sports moment? Well, I love the Olympics. I'm always sad that they, we wait for four years. They're here for two weeks, and three weeks, and I'm sad to see them go. And of course, we just came to the conclusion of, of this year's Olympics. I don't know that I have a favorite moment per se, but I'm, I'm a big skier. And uh, I, I find absolutely remarkable the uh, the success that Michaela Schifrin has, has uh, shown the world over the past four, four years, really, five years now, between being a slalom skier and then getting better and downhill. And it's just absolutely remarkable to see someone like that who is specialized in one area become a generalist in in all areas, to to kind of use investment terms, I guess. And it turns out you can grow up in Vermont or the Northeast and still have that
0: kind of success. That's right.
1: (laughs) What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My father would always tell me that if you're going to do something, do it right the first time. And I try to adhere to that basic principle, I, and I try to get others to as well. Uh, that's probably one of the parental words of or terms of wisdom that I, I have, have continued to stick with.
0: What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about?
1: I... Uh, love the outdoors, do a lot of mountaineering and uh, rock climbing and ice climbing. And so I read a lot of outside magazine and and, and other other magazines that talk about the the feats that, that individuals accomplish in the outdoors. And I think what I learn from that is perseverance, tenacity, focus on the issue at hand. If you're Alex Honnold, and and maybe I should modify the first question you asked. Maybe the most amazing sport, if you want to call it a sporting event, was Alex Honnold climbing El Capitan without any protection. Was just mind-boggling. So you know, if stories like that keep remind me that to succeed at whatever it is you're doing, you need to maintain an intense focus. You need to maintain discipline. And just an absolute conviction that, that you can do it. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I wish when I was younger, I had been less dogmatic, I guess, toward positions generally, you know, whether it's political or daily occurrence uh, in my business life. I think I've become less dogmatic and more open to trying to understand other ideas and other people. And it's something, again, that I've had to work at in order to survive and succeed in what I do. Back to discussions we had earlier about working with the folks on the other side of the table. Yeah.
0: So it's your it's your waning days. You are sitting back in a comfortable chair about to take in the next great Tony Award-winning show.
1: What advice would you give yourself today? <laughs> to invest in Apple in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little late for that. <laughs> Maybe that's a part of it. I would look back. I hope that when I'm 100, uh, I can look back and, and say that I had a very full life, well-lived, that was as as diverse as I wanted it to be, and that I did not choose not to explore some aspect of life or part of the world because I thought that it just wasn't possible or couldn't do it. I like to see the world as something that everyone can enjoy, take advantage of in a good way and and give back a little and live a a whole and holistic life. All right. One last question,
0: especially for you. What is the can't miss show or shows
1: right now (laughs) on Broadway? I'm not sure I can say that because they're all our children on Broadway (laughs) uh, since uh, since we're the Broadway league. How about what show did you see most recently that you thoroughly enjoyed? The Band's Visit is a wonderful show. In fact, actually, I just saw Frozen last week, and Frozen and The Band's Visit are probably going to be the two shows that a lot of people talk about, the Tony Awards. Interestingly, you have two shows, one that's small and intimate, one that's that's a you know, big entertainment. They're both very entertaining. But uh, they're very different shows, yet uh, you know, they're going to both be uh, – fighting for the tony award so a lot of good stuff on broadway this year as always and lots of different variety for all sorts of different people so that's that's what makes our business model work in in this industry fantastic chris thanks so much of course thank you ted
0: hey before you take off i've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com and join the mailing list.